Tonight's speaker, Ann Weiden, uh, received her BA degree from Gutenberg University, her MA in geopolitics from uh, French Institute of Geopolitics, and her PhD in history from Sciences Po in Paris, where her dissertation was The Images of Saudi Arabia in the United States from 1973 to September 11th, 2001. She has published a number of uh, uh, scholarly book chapters, articles, reviews, has given a number of uh, public talks, and currently Dr. Viden is, the, is a full-time lecturer in international relations at the University of Pennsylvania and is also the program coordinator at the Middle East Center of, uh, of Penn. Uh, she, has, she has in the past participated in a, another program here at the college. A few years ago she was part of a discussion of the Arab Spring. And as I pointed out in our discussion before tonight, tonight's program, that everybody who attended, almost everybody who attended at that time, four years ago, five, five years ago, I guess, we were so optimistic about what was going to happen in the Arab world. Except for one of my colleagues who was, uh, who was uh, an Egyptian, a Cop, Coptic Christian, who was not so enthusiastic about what was going on. And unfortunately, she proved to be more realistic in her analysis of the area. But beyond that, please join me in welcoming the return of Dr. Anna Weiden. Good evening. It's really nice to see so many of you here tonight. Uh, the questions that I often get when talking about Saudi Arabia is, why can't women run in Saudi Arabia? When will there be a revolution in Saudi Arabia? While I will not focus on these questions in my talk, we might talk about them in the, in the Q&A, so bear with me. As a historian, I would like to bring you back to the beginnings of the U.S.-Saudi relation. I think it, to understand the current state of U.S.-Saudi relations, we also need to understand how it all began. So let us go back. First of all, where is Saudi Arabia? Well, it is close to Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Oman, uh, Sudan on the other side, uh, Ethiopia. And here we have the, the map also of Saudi Arabia. It's important to kind of look at the location. It's a very strategic location, which also make, explains the US interest in that region. And what else is that there is oil in this region. But it's not the whole story. But in the beginning, this is what most people think about as the beginning of the U.S.-Saudi relation. It's the meeting between Franklin D. Roosevelt and Im Saud, the founder of Saudi Arabia, on the USS Quincy in the Great Bitter Lake on the 14th of February in 1945. And this was a meeting, a very important meeting, because it was the consolidation of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And what did they discuss? Well, they discussed they discussed um, oil, of course, but they also discussed Israel. And King Saud, he understood that uh, FDR had actually promised him that there would not be an Israeli state. That was not really the case, but that was um, Im Saud's understanding of it. Then FDR died, and Truman became president and was a very adamant supporter of the creation of an Israeli state. 
So this was the really kind of shaky beginnings, both important but also shaky beginnings of the US-Saudi relations. Despite the creation of an Israeli state, the relationship proved to be very strong. So over time, the United States has balanced its relationship with Israel and its relationship with Saudi Arabia. They have very different relationships. I would call it a more warm, close relationship with Israel and a more pragmatic relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia. So let's continue a bit. This is the signing, a picture of the signing of the concession agreement, which was given to Standard Oil of California in 1933. And this is really the beginning of the oil venture in Saudi Arabia. Oil was not going to be found until, uh, let me see here, until uh, the 1930s. And the most famous well was the Dammam Number no. 7 uh, vale, uh, um, oil well. And so, Oil in, in commercial quantities were, was found in 1938. It was not until between 1933 when the concession was granted and um, the founding of the oil in commercial quantities was a rather laborious, difficult time period when the oil companies had to uh, kind of justify their presence in Saudi Arabia. Uh, here you have, let's see, I actually have a pointer here, see if I can use this. This guy here is my, Max Steinecke, was one of the most um, famous oil geologists at the time. And he was part of the team that actually found the oil in Saudi Arabia. And you can see their dressing here also. Uh, of course, very practical in the desert when we sometimes have a sandstorm, uh, but also to blend in with the other with, with the Saudis, so to speak. And so let me see if I can go out. I actually wanted to show you an excerpt from a propaganda movie made by uh, Aramco, what was Standard Oil of California, which was granted the concession in 1933, was, part, was to be part of the conglomeration of oil companies that was to form Aramco that you might have heard about. So what I want to show you here is a propaganda movie done to justify the presence of oil companies in Saudi Arabia in the 1950s. In sun-baked earth, one-third the size of the United States. A place of ancient glories. Long ago, a center of thriving trade where came the merchants from India and China to barter their wares for the spices and the incense, hurl evil days upon the land. And for a cent fell into eclipse and remained until very recent years remote, unknown, and isolated. Most of its people were the Bedouin camel herders and shepherds who roamed the arid hostile wastes from one oasis to another in the wake of scattered rains which produced short-lived patches of vegetation. Monotony and poverty were the common lot. But in their abiding faith, they found solace. For religion is not worn like a cloak in the Arab land. It is a vital part of every good Muslim's life. Muhammad united the Arabs, purified their customs, bound them into one people, and filled them with a great faith. Five times a day, even the humblest Arab stops his work, faces Mecca, and intones the sacred words of the Quran. 
La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. water supply permitted, wheat was grown. And the Arab, essentially good-humored in spite of his hard life, would make a little dance and a little song as he threshed the grain. He winnowed out the wheat by letting the wind blow the chaff away. But crops, judged by modern standards, were pitifully small. And for townspeople and Bedouin alike, life was an endless struggle. So let's move a bit forward here. I heard some laughs in the audience. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting um, Orientalist kind of perspective that, that we get here in this, in this movie. Let's see if we can see a bit of the actual oil industry here. Here in such a setting, they prepared to search for oil. The geological crews combed the blistering desert month after month, searching for places most likely to yield petroleum. Instruments and calculations indicated the best prospects, but the geologists knew what many laymen don't, that the only way to know whether or not oil exists in any one place is to drill for it. Finally, they drilled the first well. They found oil, but not in commercial quantities. It was not encouraging. They drilled again, no luck. And again, still failure. These were dismal days. And here and there, a voice would say, we're licked. Let's admit it. But there were stubborn men in the field and in the San Francisco office who did not have enough sense to quit. The kind of senseless men who all through history have done such foolhardy things as believing that steam could run an engine or that crops would grow on the deserts of California or that a voice could carry over a wire. It was men like these who said, we'll drill deeper who drilled and failed once more and saw their careers and their reputations burning away beneath the desert sun. And then, at the mom, it happened. Oil in commercial quantities had been brought in after three long, discouraging years. This was the goal toward which they had striven. This was the victory that faith and sweat had bought. A long road has been traveled since those early years. There have been changes and great expansion. The original concession has been enlarged. So I think I'll stop here and we'll, let's go back to the original presentation here. But just to illustrate for you uh, the importance of this, this is where it all starts, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And 
first, the first part of that relationship was actually managed by the oil comp company Aramco. So Aramco was actually functioning very much like a state with its own state department and its own entities, like state entities, uh, kind of doing research on Saudi Arabia, on Saudis. There were also even CIA agents being actually planted in Aramco to observe what was going on in Saudi Arabia, to kind of show you just the importance of, of this uh, venture. So who is this? Uh, do you guys recognize Ike Eisenhower? And it's King Saud. Uh, when um, Ibn, uh, Ibn Saud, uh, the father and the, also the father, founder of Saudi Arabia, died in 1953, uh, his son Saud became king. And we heard her here, Jack Pesta, talking about uh, Saud, that he wasn't a, a, a very good gestionaire of, of uh, state affairs. And, and that's true. However, uh, the United States thought that he could become an important figure in the kind of the countering policies that they were waging against um, Arab nationalists, for example, represented most clearly by Nasser. So um, CIA and um, uh, Secretary of State uh, Dallas thought that, well, maybe we can turn him, him into some kind of Islamic pope. Maybe he can be the rallying point Maybe he can be a, union, a unifying factor uh, against Nasser. Because Nasser was by some seen as a threat to uh, US oil power in Saudi Arabia, for example. So in 1957, uh, Saud came to Washington and New York. And for the first time, uh, Ike actually, President Eisenhower actually met uh, heads of state at Dallas airport. It was the first person that he actually did so too. Because uh, King Saud, he actually asked that he would be met by, by president, the president. So the pres president didn't have any choice uh, other than to go and meet uh, King Saud uh, at Dallas airport. And actually, this little fellow here is um, King Saud's son. Uh, he had. Uh, some difficulties, he had uh, an illness, I think some sort of neurological fever that had made him infirm, so he came with his father to the United States to get treatment. And he was actually very much pictured by the press at the time. He was a very popular uh, object. And he was also pretty charming. Uh, here to show you uh, the importance of this visit, um, King Saud, uh, on the cover of Times Magazine. That kind of says something of the importance of, of, of the person. Here we have Nasser. So this is a very important kind of moment in time. If also if we talk about uh, this, the uh, US oil venture in Saudi Arabia. In the 1950s, there were several uh, labor unrests taking place in Saudi Arabia, demonstrations against Aramco. So it became a state affair even for uh, the US government because it was seen as a threat both to the regime in Saudi Arabia and to oil, US oil interests. Uh, and in the press, it was very much phrased or framed as a communist uh, kind of uh, action being planted by, by, by the Soviets and also uh, other Arab radical forces, uh, which was kind of embodied by, by uh, Nasser at the time. 
here uh, we have another very important uh, event or important figures. Uh, Wanda Jablomski, um, referred to often as the midwife of OPEC. OPEC was created in 1960. And here we have Saudi Arabia's oil minister, Abdullah Tariqi. Uh, Abdullah Tariqi uh, was a very important figure, and, and so was Wanda uh, Jablonski. If we think about um, the creation of OPEC also as a threat, in a sense, or as a challenge to US hegemonic power, uh, because you here in the audience, I, I suppose you were familiar with the 1973 oil embargo and the impact of that. But the story actually starts before that. For the oil embargo to be so um, significant, something else had to happen. And in the 1950s, 1960s, something started to happen, a shift in oil power and, and power of the oil production from what we call the Seven Sisters, um, the U US oil companies mainly, to the oil-producing countries, such as Saudi Arabia, for example, Iraq, Iran. So in 1960, OPEC was created to give more leverage uh, over uh, oil production and, and the sale of oil. So this is kind of what is important to remember and understand that the 1973 oil embargo was just one incident incident that was magnified by the, the fact that OPEC was already in, created. And also, we already had an energy crisis in the United States in 1971. So when the oil embargo struck, this was also a magnifying factor. Uh, however, um, Abdullah Tariqi, who actually wanted to nationalize completely Saudi oil, he became um, a very problematic figure and was sacked eventually by, by the Saudi regime and was replaced by someone that you might be familiar with, uh, Jamani. Jamani was on the cover of very many Times magazines also in the 1970s. Uh, last week I was in Abu Dhabi uh, on an oil conference. So I, I spent six days talking about oil, both directly and indirectly. And I actually met people who uh, were part of the creation of OPEC. So it was very, very interesting. Uh, I met the Qatari oil minister. I met the Iraqi oil minister. Who They didn't have those positions at the time, but, but they were present uh, during the creation of OPEC. So it was very interesting to, to hear their opinions and also to hear them, what they thought about the oil embargo and their thinking, their strategic rationale behind it. It was very interesting. Yeah, this is something that I, I imagine that some of you have experienced uh, personally and, and heard about if you didn't experience it personally. I remember I lived in Buffalo for five years and um, a lot of people at that time went to Canada to buy gas because it was cheaper in Canada and, and more uh, plentiful. So that was quite interesting to me that a lot of people would actually go over the border to, to, to buy gas. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, here again you have uh, some symbols uh, kind of telling you about the impact of the oil embargo and how that was perceived by people. Uh, obviously, one of, the, uh, one of the impacts of this, one of the effects of this was the enormous amount of oil money that was actually being uh, amassed by, by the oil producers, right? Which gave them a lot of spending power, but it also made people afraid, what will happen? Can they absorb these money? Can they absorb the money in these countries? 
might there be an, an disabilitating kind of factor, uh, a lot of money coming in. So there was a lot of things going on. So who do we have here? President Reagan, right? And who is the other guy, you might ask? Is there someone who knows who he is? Sorry? No, so this is, this is actually Bandar bin, Bandar's, uh, bin Sultan. He was the, U, uh, he was the um, ambassador uh, of Saudi Arabia to the United States um, kind of before or 9-11. Or uh, so, uh, and, he, and during the time, uh, the 80s, he was a very, very important figure in the diplomatic circles in Washington. He was also one of the most fervent kind of lobbyists for Saudi Arabia in, in, in Washington. And he was very much uh, one of the people who drove home um, the selling of, of important arms to transfers to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so we talk about oil power, we talk about Arab oil power, or we see that in the press at the time. And he was one of the people that actually uh, were involved in, in, in making this into something uh, real. And this is an interesting book um, about the debate of the AVEX, because the, the selling of arms to Saudi Arabia caused an enormous debate at the time. Uh, why? Uh, Israel was one of the reasons. Uh, because at the, the thinking was at the time, if we sell arms to Saudi Arabia, we have to be careful to respect the strategic edge of, of, uh, of Israel. So that was part of, of, of the, the rationale and part of in the debate. So President Reagan, he had to find a way to justify this arms deal, despite a lot of people actually being worried about Israel. So that was very much part of the de debate. Things have changed very much these days, but this was really part and parcel of the debate in, in the 1980s. And what is this? Yeah. So before 1979, before the Iranian Revolution, Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, both of them were strategic pillars uh, to the United States. And if, if you know something about the Nixon Doctrine, the Nixon Doctrine in the, United, in the Middle East uh, was kind of going to work in the way that uh, Saudi Arabia and primarily Iran, they were going to be the ones defending um, the Middle East. Uh, this uh, more practically meant that arms transfer to Iran, arms transfers to Saudi Arabia, and Iran was very much the senior pillar, and Saudi Arabia the junior pillar. This changed. This changed in 1979. So Saudi Arabia became a much, much more important strategic uh, ally for the United States, together with Israel. Israel was not mentioned in the Nixon doctrine, but Nixon was uh, the Israel was the third uh, pillar. Yeah. This. What, do you guys know what this is? Yeah, hostage the hostage crisis, right. So this was also something uh, that, that, that you have seen the pictures and very much if we talk about images of Islam or images of, or um, kind of portraying Islam as being, uh, equating it with, with terrorism comes very much from this, this time period. And what is this then? So in 1979, uh, there was, uh, the Grand Mosque in Mecca was seized by Islamists, by Saudi Islamists. 
And this was seen as an enormous threat to the Saudi regime. Uh, and so um, the Saudi king asked uh, the important clergy to, to proclaim a fatwa to be able to go into the holy uh, mosque to kill and to take, uh, yeah, to take care of these people who were, were uh, in, in the kind of the big, big, big mosque area in Mecca. If you have seen pictures of the Kaaba, uh, where people go around. Uh, so this was, the, this was the very area where, where they had actually, that they had actually seized. And how this happened was that French special forces were involved in this. So they were the ones actually going in and, and eliminating uh, these uh, people. So that's something to, to also remember. So when we talk about Saudi Arabia, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a complex story with the Islamists in Saudi Arabia. So this is also one important chapter in the US-Saudi uh, relationship, and that has to do with Afghanistan. And as you can see here, uh, every country and every people has a stake in the Afghan resistance, for the freedom fighters of Afghanistan are defending principles of independence and freedom that form the basis of global security and stability. So, if we, if we remember what happened in 9-11, if we, a lot of things started here. Not everything, but there is a link here. It's something that we will investigate. And here, do you guys know who this is? Osama Bin Laden, yes, exactly. And so, among these freedom fighters, among the people who, whom the United States were actually cooperating with was Osama Bin Laden. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that's something to, to remember. So what happened in Afghanistan uh, in, in this, uh, during the war 1979 to 1989, is a series of radicalization of uh, groups, militant groups. Uh, and how, what's the link here with 9-11? Yeah, that's something that I will tell you. Here again, you have interesting uh, pictures here of Brzezinski. Let's see if we can. I do it again, talking Afghanistan with uh, Brzezinski. Yeah, uh, no regrets uh, regarding uh, of what happened in Afghanistan. So what happened in Afghanistan? What happened was that the United States and Saudi Arabia, they uh, took their funds and funded uh, and provided logistical support to these freedom fighters. And they also used the Pakistani intelligence services to channel this money. So that's something that is also uh, interesting to, to, to note. And here you see uh, in, in the White House, uh, these freedom fighters coming to meet uh, with President Reagan. And it's, I, I find it, uh, yeah, his, history is important. So who's this guy? Saddam Hussein, yes. So the next chapter in the U.S.-Saudi relations uh, to kind of understand where we are today is the, is the first Gulf War, right? And here we see uh, oil wells burning. Um, I thought the picture was pretty poignant, so I, I wanted to show you 
show you that with the camels also in, in the fore, foreground. And who do we have here? Yes, and who is this guy? Colin Powell, yes. They're sitting here. And they were uh, very important figures, of course, uh, during the Gulf War. Um, and one of the things where we can find a link, actually, between what happened in Afghanistan and what we have in, in uh, Saudi Arabia, I mean, the deployment of 500,000 American troops into Saudi Arabia, a country that is profoundly religious, to, to many people, this was seen as the infidels in, in the whole, Holy Land. So th this was what some people, among them uh, Osama bin Laden kind of thought. Osama bin Laden, he had actually asked the king if he could take care of uh, Saddam Hussein, if he, with his fighters, could take care of Saddam Hussein. And, the, and the King Fahd, at the time, he only laughed at him. Um, so radicalization, of uh, these foreign fighters and other people, Saudi uh, warriors in Afghanistan, then coming back to Saudi Arabia. And after the deployment, after the, Saudi, uh, the US troops had left, uh, there was a very volatile situation uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia. So yeah. So then in the 1990s, it's a crucial kind of decade for the creation of, of, of Al-Qaeda. Um, so this is kind of the, the, the end game. So what was so particular about this and what is the link here to Saudi Arabia? So one of the most kind of closest link is the fact that 15 of the 19 uh, hijackers, terrorists were Saudi citizens. And of course that was not a very good thing for the U.S.-Saudi relations. Um, I, I suppose that you all guys all remember this, right? Yeah, this is a dif difficult uh, picture uh, for you, uh, I sense. So what happened at that time, what happened was that there was a lot of debates, of course, uh, regarding Saudi Arabia's role. Was there a, a role, had the Saudi state been involved in this? And to what extent had the Saudi state been involved? I would say that until today, we don't really know the full extent of that. We don't know to what extent the Saudi state uh, was involved and who was involved. Uh, the report has been um, written, and you have probably read about the fact that some pages of the report were not being released, and then they were released. Uh, so I think this is the chapter that it, it's not come full circle yet. So I think we, we will still see uh, things uh, related to this. Um, and you may have noted that President Obama also uh, was actually one of the most um, critical presidents of Saudi Arabia. Seldom has there been such a lot of criticism being voiced by, by a US president, such as when uh, Obama was, was in office. And here, here we, I mean, last year there was a lot of uh, reports, a lot of things being written about this. Uh, yes, the 9-11 investigation was terminated before all the relevant leads were able to be investigated. Saudi role in 9-11. And this is only, I mean, last year. Uh, so um, I think that we will have a lot of other different things coming out. Okay, fast forward to uh, 
contemporary uh, US-South relations. So what does this make you think about? Arab Spring, yes. And why do I have a picture of Mubarak uh, and Mubarak leaving and, and I, what's the relationship with Saudi Arabia? Do you guys know? Sorry? No, uh, not Mubarak, but Morsi was. Morsi, uh, President Morsi was in the Muslim Brotherhood. So the US and Saudi Arabia has been, have been some of the most important allies in the Middle East to uh, the US. And what happened when um, uh, President Obama supported the, the removal of Mubarak was that the Saudis was, they were very, very angry and upset. Why were they angry and upset? They were angry and upset because they felt then that if the United States are prepared to throw this kind of old ally under the bus, they might do the same with us. So that was really uh, one of the first kind of real, real, real tense moments in, in this relationship, post 9-11. Uh, so ever since, uh, I would say that the relationship has become more and more and more and more tense. There are still very important things going on, such as uh, cooperation uh, in uh, counterterrorism, uh, of course, in the oil business, um, some in Syria, but so, so there are certain things that are still important. I would say the most important thing that actually uh, binds uh, United States and Saudi Arabia together today is the fact that uh, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of very um, important arms deals taking place between uh, the US and Saudi Arabia. So I would say that to me, uh, as far as I can tell, this is really what keeps this relationship kind of going. Um, and does anybody know what this is? So this is in, in Manama, Bahrain. Uh, one of the first kind of um, telling signs that Saudi, US foreign, Saudi foreign policy had changed was the fact that in uh, March 2013, uh, Saudi troops were deployed to uh, Manama in Bahrain. This is not a typical move by a Saudi government. Saudis uh, have the proclivity, or has had so in the past, of being um, acting more in, 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 in quiet, in, in secret, and also in a much more diplomatic and more kind of slow working kind of fashion. So this is a telling sign that something else, something new is going on. A more aggressive and more assertive foreign policy. And this is something that I, I bet you have uh, read about, right? So we see here uh, President Obama and uh, President Assad, uh, the red line uh, statement. This was something that was very, very, very upsetting for the Saudis. Uh, not for the reasons may, that you might, might think. The bigger picture here is the hegemonic battle being waged between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So how is this relevant? In Syria, there is a large presence of Iranian uh, soldiers, Iranian secret uh, police. So Saudi Arabia and Iran is very much vying for ideological, uh, political hegemony in the Middle East. So Syria is part of that. 
Bahrain was also part of that, because in Bahrain you have a Sunni minority ruling over a Shia uh, majority. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, there are a large minority of, uh, uh, of Shiites, and the Shiites are seen as the fifth cologne, as a threat to, to the Saudi regime. Uh, so, so it's much more to the picture than kind of meets the eye. So, uh, while the Saudis might be very um, uh, willing to talk about uh, the killing of civilian lives in Syria, uh, the, the most important thing here is the hegemonic battle with, with, with Iran. And who is this guy? You guys know? Oh, there is, of course it's uh, President Obama, but who is the other guy? So this is King Salman, who succeeded uh, uh, King, King Abdallah in, let's see now, two, 2014. 2015. Well, forgive me if I make some mistake here, but... Uh, so he's very much part of this new, uh, more aggressive uh, foreign policy. Uh, more assertive foreign policy. But the most important person is not necessarily uh, the king, but his son. This guy here, Mohammed uh, bin Salman, who is often referred to as Mr. Everything. Why is he referred to as Mr. Everything? So he is 31 years old. He is uh, the defense minister. He is deputy crown crown prince, he has important uh, kind of power over uh, the court, the Saudi court, uh, economic reforms, uh, uh, social reforms, so he's a very, very important person. And he's also very much admired by young Saudis. He's a pretty outspoken, well-educated person, and this is something very, very new in, 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 uh, in, um, in kind of Saudi, uh, Saudi circles. Um, because as what you have seen through the years are very old people, right, in power. So this is, this is a huge change. This is um, his 2030 vision. Uh, so it's a kind of big reform program uh, that he launches, launched in April 2016. Uh, trying to diversify Saudi uh, economy, because Saudi economy, as you might imagine, is very oil-based, right? So uh, this is a new, starting with uh, actually selling parts of Saudi Aramco, 5% of Saudi Aramco, which is one of the biggest oil companies in the world, uh, and, and many, many, many other things. Um, However, there is, this kind of reform is not really being followed by any social reforms, such as reforms giving women maybe the right to travel without asking permission of their husbands, sons, cousins, or whatever. So I would say that driving is important, but before driving, uh, women should have the right to, to go wherever they please without asking their husbands. So, so if, they, if they can't do that, they can't really drive either, really. So that, that, that's kind of my thinking. Let's see here. Let's go back a bit. Um, so this is a picture uh, of the war in Yemen. 
And this is also very much part of a very, very sad uh, kind of embodiment of this new uh, Saudi assertive foreign policy. Um, so the relationship or the, or the between uh, Yemen and Saudi Arabia goes back uh, much, much further than, than uh, I mean, this, this war. So that's something that we have to remember. But what is in interesting if we talk about U.S.-Saudi relations is that the U.S. Have, has provided very much uh, arms, um, logistical support to this war. So it's a very, um, I mean, a lot of human rights atrocities. Uh, the, the Yemen, I mean, is a very poor country to begin with. So it's a lot, a lot of issues. And we also have Al-Qaeda presence in, in, in Yemen. And why is this so important to Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia, of course, is bordering on to, to Yemen. So it's very close. Uh, and um, these rebel, the Houthi rebels that they are kind of fighting with, they have been doing in, uh, they have been going in on Saudi territory. They have been throwing uh, bombs and so forth. But the real reason a lot of people suspect is that Iran is supporting the, the, the Houthis. So this is kind of part of, uh, of the reasons. Uh, and this is not really a war that they can win. There are no real kind of win, uh, there are no kind of, pro no really progression here. So that's something that I think it's, it's a very dangerous situation to have that so close to, to, to Saudi Arabia. So that's something that we must see. And of course, the situation in Syria is also very dire. And Saudi Arabia and Iran, have, they have a lot of res responsibility for that war, uh, I, I would say. So what's it like now when we have Trump as a president? What, what, what are the US-Saudi relations like now? If uh, President Obama was a very, um, a very critical, very outspoken uh, critic of, of Saudi Arabia and of human rights issues in Saudi Arabia. Trump is very much interested in of keeping this relationship much, much more uh, close. And, 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 um, and the embodiment of this is what be, was signed when uh, Mohammed bin Salman visited uh, the White House in March. Uh, agreement, defense agreement were signed, uh, economic defense, uh, yeah, agreement were, were being signed. Um, goods worth of $20 billion uh, were being signed, uh, expenses. So um, that being said, uh, since the end of the 1990s and since the 9-11, Saudi Arabia and the United States have very much separated. They have sought new partners. Saudi Arabia now, for example, is buying weapons from the UK, uh, from France, uh, a little bit from Russia, although that is very, uh, of course, very problematic, uh, even China. And the US, of course, has this ambition to be uh, energy independent. I wanted to make a test to see, so how much oil, or how much percentage of US oil uh, use comes from Saudi Arabia, do you guys think? Sorry? Very little. Good, good, very good. Sorry? It goes to Europe. It goes to Europe, yes, it goes to Europe. And it goes to China, and it goes to India. Those are the, the biggest consumers uh, these days. 
Jess. So what do I think about the future of, of the US-Saudi relations? I think that what we will see is a more minimalistic relationship based more on economic and, and defense uh, cooperation uh, than, than what it was like in the past. So I think that is the core of the relations. It won't be any warm relations. It will be based on, on arms transfers and uh, security strategic uh, interests. And with that, I, I, I end. Thank you so much for your attention. <laughs>